Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Cohen, and on today's episode, I have Dr. James McCarter. Dr. McCarter is currently an adjunct professor of genetics at Washington University School of Medicine and is the senior entrepreneur in residence at Biogenerator in St. Louis. He was also the former head of research for Verta Health and a previous guest on the Biohackers Lab show for episode 44. James, thanks for mu- so much for coming on for another episode. Excellent, Gary. I'm glad to have the opportunity to speak with you. Yeah, so um, the reason I've got you on is because we're going to be discussing a recent Medium article that you shared that uh, I thought was very interesting to read and, of course, went a bit viral on Twitter. And that was where you got to share the current uh, keto myth-busting evidence from, that's related to research. So we're going to be busting some uh, keto myths today and sharing what the facts are. Um, but before we get on to what those different ones are, could you um, just explain to listeners the exciting news, how the um, ADA changed its guidelines using Verta Health evidence. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, one of the things is, as Verta has been working to um, expand its, its offering is that um, we use as part of our intervention of continuous remote care, we combine that with um, uh, nutritional recommendations that use nutritional ketosis um, to reverse type 2 diabetes you know, in our patients. But the ADA guidelines for the last, um, you know, really going back years are, are, are silent on low carbohydrate and ketogenic nutrition, uh, whereas they um, used to recommend a, a low fat diet. That's largely kind of gone by the wayside, but they still are recommending Mediterranean um, and plant-based diets. And so they have a cycle of reviewing the information um, every year there's a new standard of care and every uh, i believe every four years there's a new uh, set of nutritional recommendations and so we knew that those committees were meeting and looking at the evidence um, that was coming out of new publications from not only verta's clinical trial with indiana university health but also other uh, randomized clinical trials that have been done over the last few years such as the work uh, uh, out of uh, ucsf um, and a number of other uh, meta-analyses of um, ketogenic nutrition and low carbohydrate nutrition trials for um, for type 2 diabetes. And so we were excited to see that in January of 2019, when the new standards of care came out, that they, for the first time, in, incorporated uh, low carbohydrate and very low carbohydrate um, uh, eating patterns um, into the uh, recommendations around uh, nutrition. And then that was confirmed in when the uh, nutritional guide guidance came out um the consensus statement on on nutrition came out in april um both of those in diabetes care um and you know showed basically that citing the verta trial and citing some of the recent meta-analyses that there is evidence that very low carbohydrate uh, eating patterns um, can lower hemoglobin a1c at the same time that people see um, removal of uh, glycemic control medications. And so what they said, I'll just quote from that. They said, low carbohydrate eating patterns, especially very low carbohydrate eating patterns, so that would include uh, ketogenic patterns, have been shown to reduce hemoglobin A1C and the need for antihyperglycemic medications. Uh, these eating patterns are among the most studied eating patterns for type 2 diabetes. 
so that yeah that was just uh we were uh tremendously enthused to to see the the ada um coming around on that yeah i mean that must be because that is a historic event for um i think diabetics given that option now um because it's a part of the guidelines so it just means that uh, more healthcare professionals now will have confidence being able to give that option to patients, I think, around the world, well, especially in the U.S. So. Yeah, exactly. So, and I think, and, and it also includes the European Association for the Study of Diabetes um, made a similar statement in a joint consensus paper with um, with uh, ADA that came out um, in late 2018. Um, so, it's, I think it, it, it applies um, at least to some practitioners in Europe as well. And I think that makes for for patients who want to explore. Um, this dietary pattern as a way of treating their diabetes, it makes that conversation with their medical provider um, much more comfortable. And, and I think it, it puts the provider in a better position too, that they don't have to feel that they're giving um, guidance that's outside of the guidelines. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, we're going to move on to your facts and myths now. So if you could take it away with uh, your number one uh, myth busting one, which was, is the keto diet unsustainable long term? Yeah, and, and so this uh, medium post I, um, you know, wrote after our two year outcomes paper um, for Verta Health uh, and Indiana University Health, the two year trial data came out um, in, uh, in, uh, um, in frontiers and endocrinology in June. Um, and so I started looking back at our one-year data and, and our two-year data and saying, you know, what are some of the things that are commonly given as um, kind of roadblocks to, that are thrown up around trying ketosis that we now have a lot of data from clinical trials to suggest that that's not the case. And so one of the most common is sustainability. You know, can people do this long-term? And you know we ha- we now have evidence of 74% retention um, of the hundreds of patients in our clinical trial out out at two years, um, and so all of those individuals, uh, nearly all, have demonstrated um, that they've been in nutritional ketosis at least for a time, but based on um, their ketone levels by by blood. Um, and in terms of what they're doing out at two years, um, it's a variety of different things. There's some people who really get dialed in on, on a strict ketogenic diet, um, generally less than 30 grams of carbohydrates a day and want to do that long-term. Um, and then there are others that as they've got better um, uh, insulin sensitivity are able to kind of expand their dietary choices. And so while they're, they're still on the relatively low uh, carbohydrate end of the spectrum, perhaps less than 100 grams per day, they're not necessarily strictly staying with with a, a ketogenic diet um, long term. So it really depends on kind of what's sustainable for the patient, and do they continue to see favorable biomarkers in terms of their blood glucose uh, and their weight um, and the other changes that are occurring within their health. You know, and if they're um, if they require strict ketosis to sustain those, then that's something they can shoot for. If if uh, if they do well without being in strict ketosis, they can do that as well. So, but, um, you know, so, but I think it's, you know, to say that ketosis is only something that can be tried for, uh, you know, um, a few weeks or a few months is incorrect. Mm-hmm. And now you've got the data behind it for type 2 diabetic patients. I mean, you, yes. you, you yourself, who you're not diabetic, but you've been in ketosis for several years now too. Yeah, coming up on seven years. <laughs> So it's definitely sustainable for you. That's a, that's a good uh, N equals one there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, 
Perfect. So, and then what about the second myth, which is that uh, being on a ketogenic diet could cause diabetic ketoacidosis? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the um, challenges just in terminology is that when a physician or an endocrinologist hears uh, nutritional ketosis or keto, they may immediately jump to their medical training uh, around diabetic ketoacidosis. And so it's really just kind of the, the vocabulary there that these are very distinct uh, metabolic states. Um, ketoacidosis is a dangerous event that occurs with very high ketone levels um, in the absence of insulin um, together with very high glucose levels and resulting in a metabolic acidosis. And, and um, that is not at all what uh, nutritional ketosis is, which are ketone levels that are about a tenth as much um, with um, normal physiological control of, of, um, of, of glucose and insulin. Um, and so we don't see that uh, being in nutritional ketosis predisposes our patients to, to transitioning into ketoacidosis. That's just not the case. And I guess, again, you know, the, the data that we're referencing here is for type 2 diabetics, so people who are diagnosed with a diabetic condition um, and using a low-carbohydrate diet, they're not entering the state of diabetic ketoacidosis. Uh, that, that's right. Um, and so we're able to demonstrate in our trial that we're not seeing ketoacidosis as an adverse event. Um, we're also um, not seeing metabolic acidosis or what's called an anion gap in, 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 the, uh, in the tracking of our laboratory values for, for our patients. I would um, add a couple of, of notes that one thing that we do um, it, with the, the Verta clinical practice is that we generally will remove patients um, from what are called SGLT2 inhibitors, which are one of the diabetes um, medications. Um, it's, it's known and been shown in case reports um, that SGLT2 inhibitors predispose patients to ketoacidosis um, and to what's known as euglycemic ketoacidosis. So they can get a ketoacidosis in the absence of a glucose rise because they're, they're removing glucose um, from uh, their blood uh, through the kidneys, uh, filtering and, and disposing of glucose in the urine. Um, and, and what we want to do is we want to not miss an event like that. So we want to avoid somebody having this adverse of, uh, reaction to an SGLT2 inhibitor. And so generally, we will take our patients off of those medications. Okay. Is there any particular name for those so that someone would know that they're on them? Uh, let's see. So uh, Invocana is, is one. Jardiance, um, Flarziga um, would be um, a couple of those. Um, okay. I, yeah. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So maybe, any, again, it's just good information for anyone listening to this. Um, and um, the... The third myth here is that being on a ketogenic diet will cause low blood sugar. Yeah, and, and so this is something that we also don't see. So, you know, one of the, um, you know, ideas that people have is, is that uh, as you enter into nutritional ketosis, it's going to drive your blood sugar down not only to, um, to, to normal, um, but actually below the normal range. Um, and, and, that's just not the case. The, the thing to, that we're you know, careful of in the, in the medical practice with Inverta is to remove, again, medications that can cause this. Um, and so if, if you're having a high dose of insulin, um, whether you're in ketosis or not, that can predispose you to a hypoglycemic event. And then sulfonylurea drugs, um, 
most people don't need to be on those. And in, in the case of the clinical trial population, we actually removed, um, uh, got 100% um, you know, elimination of sulfonylureas. Um, and um, so I can I can throw some brand names out there again. I don't I didn't have that handy. I should I'll I'll have that for you next next time. But uh, but um, but you know you want you want to kind of um, get off of the drugs that you no longer need that that are predisposing you to these hypoglycemic events um, um, in, in the first place. Um, yeah, and I guess anyone listening to this who are who is on any of these drugs. Um... Yeah, and so those sulfonylureas would be like glipizide and gliburide are two of the most common. Okay. Yeah, um, and I guess, you know, this is the, always the interesting situation where we're now seeing that you can use nutrition to try lower the amount of medications or get off chronic medications when you're a type 2 diabetic. And maybe even in these situations, it just shows if maybe you are on some of these medications that you mentioned that can have um, adverse side effects, that hopefully even through nutritional intervention, and you're being monitored closely by a medical professional that you'll be able to safely get off these so that you don't get into one of these event stages. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, and with the sulfonylureas, there, there are a handful, a small percentage of people that have atypical diabetes. So it doesn't clearly classify as type one or type two that actually respond nicely to a sulfonylurea, but it's, it's about 1% of the population. So there may be patients who are being kept on those drugs for you know for a Good reason. reason yeah okay perfect yeah. um so myth number four is that being on a ketogenic diet will deprive your brain of glucose yeah and this is one that um if, if you just uh sort of do do a search online and you see kind of what it what do um new, you know folks with nutrition training kind of throw up there in terms of just things that are complete falsehoods um that, that just kind of get thrown around um, th this is one of the top ones that's out there and it's, it's completely untrue. So, you know, the, the body is exquisitely tuned, um, at regulating, uh, blood glucose levels. And if you, for instance, are, are fasting, um, your, your liver will be producing glucose by gluconeogenesis. It'll keep your glucose within, uh, you know, a normal range. And, and then in the, in, in additional point is that for folks that are driving, uh, substantial amounts of, of their energy um, through um, nutritional ketosis that the ketones um, cross the blood-brain barrier and provide an additional um, supply um, of nutrients for the brain. So the brain's being fueled both on glucose but also on ketones as well. And actually in a fasted state, really for anyone, so let's just say somebody who's not even doing a ketogenic diet but um, goes on a three-day fast, ketones will provide um, over half of the fuel for the brain. Um, so it's, yeah, so it's not, it's, it's not true that the people will get hypoglycemic. It's also not true, um, that, uh, that the, the brain will be deprived of, of fuel. And in fact, um, ketogenic diets are being looked at, um, to treat, uh, neurologic conditions, um, and improving cognitive performance beyond just the treatment of epilepsy for which ketogenic diets have been used for years. Yeah, and I guess um, uh, you would have seen that in your in your data that if uh, patients who were following that dietary intervention weren't getting enough uh, sugar to their brains, uh, that, that suddenly you would have thousands of people with brain fog, not able to function properly, not happy. Uh, but the data is not showing that. That's right. Yeah. 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 Cool. So um, myth number five is that the ketogenic diets will cause uh, cardiovascular damage. 
Yeah, and and this is something that that also is, is not true. And we really went to a lot of effort to um, address this in terms of the um, the clinical trial that was conducted by Verda Health and Indiana University Health. So, in addition to looking at glycemic control, we looked at um, at uh, twenty six different markers um, for cardiovascular. Um, uh, risk. And, and so one way to look at that is just at the, what's called the ASCVD risk score, the atherosclerotic uh, cardiovascular disease risk score from the American Car- College of Cardiology. And that combines a number of those risk factors. Um, and we saw actually a 12% improvement in the one year ASCVD risk score, 10-year risk score in our patients, um, whereas the um, score for those in the usual care arm of the trial um, declined about 11%. Um, and then if you start breaking out by all those individual 26 different biomarkers, which include markers for hypertension and dyslipidemia and inflammation and fatty liver, uh, we see a statistically significant improvement in the intervention group on a ketogenic diet in 22 out of 26, um, risks fact risk factors, whereas we saw, um, it, it, we, we saw zero of 26 um, improve in the usual care group. Um, so, you know, um, it's, uh, these are markers. These are not um, uh, uh, mortality, morbidity and mortality statistics, which would require much larger sample size and much longer time frame. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but they're the best we can do in terms of monitoring people's cardiovascular health, and, and it's looking like a substantial improvement. And did I read also that you did a carotid intima media thickness test part of that? So you actually did a scan of the carotid arteries? That's right. And um, and what we saw really was no change um, in either the intervention group or the usual care group um, um, at at one year. And that that's pretty much as you would expect that it's going to take, you know, quite a number of years um, for uh, the carotid intermedia thickness to, to show you know, either an improvement in response to a therapy or um, uh, g- getting worse o- over time. Um, and, um, you know, so in some case, in some ways, sort of no change is, 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 is good news. But, um, yeah, we didn't see any kind of noticeable movement of that marker or, okay. or that measurement. Yeah. And uh, mo- that takes me on to myth number six, was, which is that the ketogenic diet will cause um, a bad cholesterol profile. Yeah, and so this is kind of a subpart of the um, cardiovascular risks profile is kind of what happens um, not only to glycemic control and hypertension um, and inflammation, um, but to the lipid profile. Um, so one of the things that we see that's that's really great is a, a resolution of what's called atherogenic dyslipidemia. Um, and that is a state that puts people at risk of cardiovascular disease and it's best measured by the triglycerides, generally high triglycerides, and, and HDL, generally low HDL. And we see improvements in both of those. Uh, the triglycerides are t- declining, um, getting lower. Um, the uh, HDL is rising, and therefore the ratio of the two is improving. And, and so that's a substantial improvement and, and, in many cases, resolution of atherogenic dyslipidemia. And then there's the um, LDL um, profile. And so there are a number of different ways of measuring um, the uh, LDL cholesterol particles um, in, in, in the body. One is what's called, what's traditionally part of the cholesterol panel, what's called LDL-C, and that's actually a calculated number by the Friedwald equation, 
where you derive it by um, uh, subtracting it from total cholesterol and H, you know, getting HDL out and accounting for um, the uh, assumption around triglycerides. And we see that the uh, that the LDLC actually rises, but the metric that's more important is actually the number of particles, um, not not the total, not not the calculated LDLC. And so we measure that a couple of different ways. One by what's called NMR lipoprofile, where you can actually look at the number of LDL particles. And in in that case, we saw a slight um, decline in the total uh, number of particles, not statistically significant, but a decline. And then also, um, you can actually look at the protein that's attached to the um, uh, the LDL particles. It's called ApoB, um, and that we also consistently see uh, a decline as well, not statistically significant, but a decline in in the number of particles as measured by ApoB. So um, you know, so that that LDL profile um, is um, not worsening. Um, yeah, so, so so that's kind of the the situation that we're seeing. Um, uh, with, with the uh, with the, the lipid profile, mm. and because I guess that again, that's always the hot topic is, and I think I mean still to this day, and I only think that maybe that question will be put to rest with years of data when we have patients who've been eating a ketogenic way or very low carbohydrate way, and the mortality and morbidity rates aren't significantly worse. Um, you know, 30, 40 years down the line, but we just aren't at that stage. But at least. Uh, people can rest assured a little bit at the moment. Yes, your LDL will go up a little bit. It sounds like you know we've I've had that discussion a lot with people, but you know when you when you get into more nitty gritty aspects of it, um, people are saying it's 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 a better profile than what it was previously. So right. So getting into sort of you can use um, a number of different techniques, including NMR lipo profile, to kind of look at the distribution of particles, and so you see the shift from what are called small dense LDL particles to what are called large buoyant LDL particles that are less thought to be less atherogenic. Um, and that's pretty common to see that kind of shift um, uh, when, when people are, um, are undertaking a ketogenic diet. And yeah, so this is one of the reasons I'd like to see actually the National Institutes of Health um, get involved as an, as an impartial body with a large, potentially, you know, a large source of funding. Um, you could, enroll thousands of patients um, and look over, um, you know, like a five-year window. If you enrolled a high-risk population, you should be able to design a trial to look at morbidity and mortality. So that's what's been done with some of the, um, some of the drugs, uh, some of the diabetes drugs that have shown uh, survival improvement and, and reduced cardiovascular events like GLP-1 um, and SGLT2 inhibitors that, that have shown some encouraging um, data. Recently, those have generally been um, two to five year trials um, in, involving on the order of, you know, 5,000, um, you know, or more patients. Um, that's that's kind of the uh, randomized trials. That, that's kind of the funding level that you would need to in order to see uh, or morbidity, or morbidity or mortality improvement. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fingers crossed we'll get there one day. <laughs> um, yeah. That, that, um, I mean, that's, you know... You know, nutrition trials um, are very hard to conduct in terms of you're not just asking people to take a drug, you're actually asking them to alter um, a, a sustainable um, behavior and behavior change is hard. Um, asking people to eat a certain way is, is hard. Um, that, that's why these, you know, these trials are very difficult to do, um, but conceivably, you know, that could be done. Mm -hmm. 
So myth number seven is that the ketogenic diet will cause inflammation. Yeah, and so the the thing that is often comes up is that you know you can uh, part of a, a ketogenic diet can include um, uh, eating uh, meat and eating dairy, and so people will you know make the claim that that meat and dairy um, will will cause inflammation. And this is actually we just don't see this in in our in our trial outcomes when people are eating a ketogenic diet. Um, they show sharp reductions um, in high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, a 35% reduction at, at, at two years, and a 7% reduction in white blood cell count. And this is, to some degree, expected based on the, um, the uh, mechanistic um, understanding of, of ketones. It's known that um, beta-hydroxybutyrate is an inhibitor of the NLRP3 inflammasome, which is one of the complexes that's involved in triggering inflammation within the body. So we know both from mechanistic studies in cell culture and in animals, um, as well as now this, this human trial work um, that, uh, and also not only the work that Bert has done, um, but also work um, that uh, Jeff Volek's lab has done at Ohio State looking at metabolic syndrome and monitoring large panels of, um, uh, of inflammatory biomarkers that, that you see this um, improvement in chronic inflammation. And again, you know, if you're a diabetic patient, inflammation is a is a thing you definitely need to get under control for, like, for vascular damage point of view too. Yes, yeah, no, it's it's um, likely just as important in terms of the etiology of um, of of, um, of cardiovascular disease um, as as is um, the, the lipid profile. Mm. So, myth number eight is that going on a ketogenic diet will cause hypothyroidism or disrupt your thyroid hormone. Yeah, again, we just don't see this. We're, we're not seeing new cases of symptomatic hypothyroid in hundreds of patients. Um, there's no evidence um, in the published literature that the thyroid requires dietary carbohydrates, which is kind of out there in, um, you know, on the internet, but it's, um, there's just no evidence to support that. Um, the you can see changes in um, in thyroid hormone levels, um, but what we saw was that mean thyroid hormone T4 was unchanged, and you would expect that um, that if there was hypothyroidism, that you would see a rise in TSH as the system tried to crank up to generate more thyroid hormone. We actually see a numeric uh, decrease on average um, in 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 TSH. Okay, yeah, and it, so then when. I, I do see it often too. And do you think it's um, in certain cases where people are under eating, like it's a calorie issue that they do, um, that they're linking this to? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't have a good answer to that. Um, I, I know that in, in some cases, um, you'll get changes that are occurring that are largely due to um, the... Um, the adaptation to ketosis um, that can be accompanied um, by um, uh, changes in the handling of of, um, of salts, um, and so, uh, and I, I can spend. I think it's probably worth spending a little more time on the changes in electrophysiology. But basically, people get hyponatremic; they have low sodium levels, and that can cause fatigue um, uh, and um, headache. Um, and, and those sometimes people will, will attribute to hypothyroid or, or a problem with the uh, adrenal glands, where in fact, it's more a matter of 
uh, electrolyte intake. Um, and, and so we should probably spend a little bit of time on that. I don't know if now's the time to talk about that or, or whether we'll come back to that. Yeah, maybe that might be a, we, we could probably have a whole episode about uh, electrolyte balance just with the ketogenic diet there. Yeah, so, well, I'll do the, I'll do like the 30 second version of it now. And that is that basically as you're getting into nutritional ketosis, that's going to result in lower levels of insulin. One of the things that insulin does, in addition to its role in glucose metabolism, is it signals the kidneys for the retention of, of sodium and, and then water that travels along with that. Um, and so as you enter into nutritional ketosis, um, your body will be um, not reabsorbing sodium to the same degree that it had been previously. So you'll be dumping sodium in the urine. You'll be um, increasing your fluid output uh, in the urine. And so if you don't do anything about that, you'll get, you'll get low in sodium hyponatremia um, and low in overall um, circulating volume. And so you need to replace that salt, replace that sodium, um, and, and replace that, those fluids. Um, and, and so largely that you can avoid all of those symptoms that are associated with you know, what's called keto flu can be avoided by just um, increasing uh, daily sodium intake. And that can be done by more heavily salting the food or having broth or bullion or, or um, you know, other, other sources of sodium. And so that, that's going to move me on to another myth. I'm going to just shift them around a little bit. But whilst we're talking mm-hmm. about kidneys, does the ketogenic diet harm your kidneys? Yeah, again, we, we don't see that in our, in our clinical trial um, outcomes. Um, we actually see that the um, glomerular filtration rate, the EGFR, EF, um, EGFR um, actually improves, and we didn't see any cases of, of worsening um, uh, kidney function. W- one thing that you will see um, in the early weeks, uh, if you do a blood panel, as you're first going through um, keto adaptation, you can see a rise in uric acid that will then um, return to normal values very quickly. And so the uric acid levels um, were, were unchanged at one and two years. That's thought to actually have to do with um, competition um, for transport between uric acid um, and, and the ketone bodies. And so there's actually, a, again, a, a sort of a change that occurs you know, likely in gene expression in the kidneys um, during physiological adaptation to ketosis um, that results then in a return of uric acid levels to normal. Okay, so uh, a diabetic patient who also suffers with gout, um, would they, they so would they maybe have an increase in gout symptoms in the initial phases of adapt, of going through a ketogenic diet? Right. So um, we did not see that in our trial. We did accept patients um, who who had uh, gout, but it would be something to monitor closely um, with with your uh, physician or care provider, and just be aware of um, that you're going to see this. Um, you know, transient increase in, in uric acid and, and just to, um, you know, make sure you're not going off of a gout medication, you know, at, at the same time, or um, just be, be, be aware of that. But it's, it's not something we've seen in terms of an uptick in, in uh, gout cases. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, you know, when you mentioned that, it just gets me thinking of other situations. So um, yep. the next myth then is, will the ketogenic diet harm your liver? Yeah, and this kind of goes back to some um, uh, rat studies um, where if you formulate um, high-fat diets in certain ways, you can actually increase um, the stored fat in, in liver and rats. Um, but actually, in fact, as you implement a, a ketogenic diet in, in humans, 
and we've shown this, other groups have shown this as well, is that you actually decrease the amount of, of fat in the liver, in the liver. Um, and that you can look at that um, not only by, by imaging that other studies have done, but by scores, there's a liver fat score, the um, NLFS score, and then the liver fibrosis score, the uh, NFS uh, score. And both of those showed um, substantial improvements. Um, we've published a paper on the one-year outcomes in, in BMJ Open, uh, and, and then um, also followed that up with including those scores in our, in our two-year outcomes paper um, in Frontiers and Endocrinology, and, and those showed um, substantial you know, improvements as well. So, you know, people, um, you know, if, if a patient has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and is looking for uh, a nutritional intervention, um, you know, that, that using a uh, ketogenic approach can be a, a very favorable way of treating that disease. Mm -hmm. And again, this is just showing, you know, some, some of your major organs actually get better when you go on a ketogenic diet is what I'm hearing here. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So next myth here is that eating a ketogenic diet will cause muscle loss. Yeah. So, um, and I can talk about kind of the next two together, muscle loss, and people also are worried about bone mineral density. And so mm -hmm. we, um, did as part of, um, the trial, uh, DEXA scans, um, dual energy X-ray absorptometry scans, uh, which has, uses a low amount of, of X-ray um, um, to, to look at the um, sort of fat mass, uh, lean lean tissue mass, um, and bone um, uh, mass with, within within the body, and the changes were favorable. So um, we see that most of the weight loss, you know, our patients on average in the first year lost uh, about thirty pounds that um, about 80% of that is, is loss in, in fat mass, as, as you would expect. That's been shown in, in, in other studies. Um, and uh, then you're losing a, you know, a small amount of lean mass that's associated with you know, carrying around um, less weight. Um, and so that, that is you know, very much as would be expected, so that, that you, you are retaining lean body mass, you're losing mostly fat mass. And then the bone mineral density looked excellent. So we didn't see any change in um, average spine bone mineral density at both one year and two years. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about patients here, these are patients who are on the Verta Health uh, diet. So the, um, and when I was looking at it, you go through different phases um, through that progress. Is are most of these people then on the maintenance phase or were they from day one when they were diabetic and then they started the diets and they went through all the phases and then eventually by year two, they were on the maintenance phase? Because I was seeing a difference in calorie intake uh, between the different phases. And it just got, just uh, would be interesting to know like which cohorts of patients were in this data. Right. Um, so let, let me talk a little bit about the trial design and then we can talk about um, kind of... Um, you know, kind of calorie intake and what that might look like. So the, the, the Verta Health trial included 465 patients that were enrolled in 2015 and 2016 in central Indiana. That included 262 people in the intervention group with type 2 diabetes, another 116 with prediabetes that will be published in a separate paper, and then another 87 people with type 2 diabetes that were in a usual care group. Um, and so we followed up all of these individuals um, over the course of initially a 70-day um, and then one year and, and, and then two years. Um, and so um, the usual care group was um, following uh, a, uh, recommendations from a registered dietitian using the ADA guidelines for 2015 and 2016. 
um, and was, you know, so the Verta folks were not involved in their care. Um, and then the Verta folks were supporting um, the people in the intervention group um, and providing not only nutritional recommendations, but a, a whole series of um, online nutritional uh, educational videos, um, interaction with a health coach and um, access to a, health, a, a team of health coaches that provided kind of round the clock um, coverage, um, interaction with a, with a um, physician, uh, as well as an online community, um, and then biometric feedback. So there was, it, was, it wasn't just you know, sort of a series of nutritional recommendations. There were actually this entire um, support process called uh, continuous remote care. Um, and then in terms of the, the dietary intervention that was occurring over that time frame, it was highly individualized. So the idea of Verda is that, you know, these nutritional recommendations are difficult to do. You know, if everybody could read a book and get better, you know, we wouldn't have to do anything, you know, uh, that, you know, diabetes would be cured. Um, but that's not the case. Uh, people need a lot of support and they need a lot of individualization. And so what the, um, software and the health coach are, are doing are, are taking sort of these general nutritional guidelines and then individualizing them so that it works for somebody um, in any really any life circumstance, whether um, somebody's, you know, working um, the night shift and eating um, at a company cafeteria or whether they're cooking for a large family or traveling on business, you have to adapt um, the nutritional recommendations to work for them. And it has to work for, you know, kind of whatever their dietary preferences are, whatever their socioeconomic status is, whatever their um, you know, re religious practices, whatever it might be. So, that, so a high degree of individualization. And then one of the things that we did not ask people to do was to keep um, a, a food log um, over that's really would be onerous over the course of two years. And it also, um, those kind of dietary recall um, data collection methodologies are, are um, seriously flawed. People generally cannot remember exactly what it is that they ate. They tend to under-report calories. Um, and, and so the utility of that information um, would, would be highly suspect. And so, you know, our thought was really what's much more useful is the biomarker, is measuring blood beta-hydroxybutyrate on a daily level. It gives us a good, you know, chance to look at their sort of degree of ketosis that's much more um, useful to us and to the patient than, um, you know, trying to capture, you know, a calorie count and a macronutrient um, count from, um, you know, food recall. Okay. Yeah. So in this case here, um, just thinking, you know, some people may attribute it that it was the reduction of calories, which is like one of the approved uh, methods for diabetic control, which is a very low calorie diet. Um, but in this case, we're not, this intervention isn't looking at that, it sounds like. Yeah, I, and I would say in terms of sort of the mechanism of action of why are people getting better, you know, I think some of it is attributed um, to the weight loss, but I think sometimes there's a reversal of cause and effect. There's this assumption that weight, you know, that extra weight is is the problem or extra fat mass is the problem when, in fact, um, mechanistically, uh, you know, it's it's likely that both the um, both the diabetes and the extra fat mass are related to the hormone levels of hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance as, as, as a you know, putative kind of underlying um, mechanism so that they are correlative but not necessarily causal. Um, but you may see sort of, you know, you could have symptomatic improvement because of the loss of, uh, of, um, of, of fat mass. But um, the, one, there was a study that was done, um, again, out of Jeff Volick's lab at, at Ohio State 
um, recently just published, I believe, in July in uh, JCI Insight, looking at people not with diabetes, but with metabolic syndrome and addressing this question directly, which is to say, hey, let's compare um, a low carbohydrate, moderate carbohydrate and high carbohydrate diet um, in individuals with obesity and metabolic syndrome. Let's hold the uh, weight constant. So we'll, we'll provide all of the food um, and we'll shift people between these various diets for a four week block of time on, you know, on, on each diet. Um, and if people start losing weight, we'll provide more calories. If people start gaining weight, we'll provide fewer calories. So we'll try to hold their weight steady. And what they found in that case is that there was still an advantage to the low carbohydrate um, eating pattern um, in terms of resolution of metabolic syndrome. And so they saw in, in these um, uh, study of, of 16 individuals that when they just spent four weeks on a low carbohydrate eating, eating pattern, that um, uh, nine of the 16 no longer met criteria for metabolic syndrome after the end of four weeks. Um, nine of 16 with the low carbohydrate, three of 16 met that criteria with a moderate carbohydrate, and only one of 16 met that carbohydrate, met, met that criteria for metabolic uh, reversal of metabolic syndrome uh, with, with high carbohydrate. So you can, you know, bottom line is that a low carbohydrate nutrition pattern can effectively reverse metabolic syndrome, even in the absence of weight loss. Yeah. And again, that's, as you said, you keep, you're trying to keep that more consistent from a, it kind of takes that calorie um, equation out of it a little bit more there. So there's, yeah, there's something exactly. else going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, kind of what's interesting about that, it, it kind of sounds like, you know, people get confused about how can, you know, you know, how can that be the case? But I, but I think in terms of the underlying physiology and biochemistry, it's important to remember that, you know, you are not what you eat, you are what you save and make from what you eat. And so actually, um, you know, when people consume high levels of starch and sugar, they rapidly will turn that into fat. Um, that's the kind of, you know, if you overconsume um, those calories, that will get um, converted into fat, whereas just consuming fat won't necessarily result in an increase um, in, in fat. So for instance, in, in, in the same study, they looked at um, the fatty acid profile of the blood, and they actually saw that for while saturated fat consumption increased um, in, in a low-carbohydrate eating pattern, the amount of saturated fat in the blood actually declined. Um, so it's 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 counterintuitive. Mm. Well, um, we've we've got through all the myths that were in your Medium article, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for sharing uh, even more information than if anyone has read that article, they got to learn even more about what each point was. Um, and probably just as we're coming to the end of the show here, I know that you are big into quantified self and doing a lot of self-testing. Are you doing anything interesting at the moment or you found any interesting findings? Uh, yeah, so just real quick, I've, I've um, you know, I, I was putting off getting an aura ring and I finally broke down and said, I, I really want to play around with one of these. And so I went ahead and got one of those um, uh, uh, back in, I think it was June. And so I've been looking at um, metrics around sleep and, and found that to be um, uh, pretty interesting. And then I just, um, uh, for a week, wore a Dexcom uh, G6 uh, continuous glucose monitor. And so probably the most interesting finding and uh, for me was that I saw these um, low glycemic um, uh, readings overnight. And 
um, to the point where actually sometimes the the glucometer was um, was uh, pinging because it, it you know it thought I was uh, going too low on my my nightly blood glucose. I think it, it pings when it gets below sixty or sixty five, something like that. Um, but I would see kind of every night that there'd be these these dips that would occur. I'd go down from the 80s into the 70s or the 60s, and it would occur at you know 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., um, and uh, it roughly correlated with what the aura ring said were the the REM sleep uh, patterns, the rapid eye movement sleep that occurs largely sort of in the second half of, of the night is when most of the REM events occur, and um, so that was pretty interesting. It's you know sort of is there uh, increased glucose uptake occurring in the brain? Uh, during REM sleep that it could could account for kind of these lower blood uh, circulating blood glucose levels and I found one paper um, um, in uh, paper in diabetic medicine from uh, 2009 uh, decreasing concentration of interstitial glucose in REM sleep in subjects with normal glucose tolerance so it was a very small study of 13 subjects but they saw the same thing is that you do get these overnight dips in blood glucose that coincide with REM sleep so that, that was that was kind of cool that is very interesting. Um, and in this case here, it's, it, you're not concerned how low your glucose levels went during that stage. Yeah, I'm, I was asymptomatic. Um, and that, you know, sometimes actually the, 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 uh, the Dexcom glucometer is connected to, to your cell phone. And so the cell phone pings with a low glucose alert, you know, and, and so it woke me up a couple of times and I felt perfectly fine. Um, and uh, ended up kind of moving my phone so that it wouldn't wake me up. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I mean, that's why di type 1 diabetics particularly, they also need that continuous glucose meter, especially at night. And I had a previous guest, uh, Carrie Dariulis, and she would tell me that that was why she did an open loop or closed loop, I forgot which one it was now, but, you know, to allow her to sleep through the night properly. Right, yeah, and I, I don't want to... Um... Uh, minimize the the seriousness of of these um, alerts that are occurring um, in folks with with type one diabetes um, or or insulin dependent uh, diabetes. That's you know indeed very serious, and I know it um, for children with type one diabetes that you know it can cause their parents to get very little sleep um, as the concern of these hypoglycemic events overnight. So I, by no means um, should should those do I mean to minimize those, but for somebody you know, who's non-diabetic and just as, um, you know, wearing a glucometer as a learning process, um, uh, this was kind of a, an interesting observation. Yeah, that would be because again, you know, I haven't had a chance myself to, to test um, continuous glucose meter. But I mean, knowing as, you know, your situation like that, I'm sure anyone else who may be testing right now, uh, just, you know, trying to get some quantified data, they're completely normal. They just want to know what food does to them and what happens over a 24 hour period. Your information is fascinating to say, hey, just, you know, you maybe may have normal blood sugar levels, but maybe it dips like this over the night. And it's just when your REM sleeps kicking in. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Well, thanks for sharing that tidbit. Uh, really love that. Um, James, if anyone wants to maybe um, follow you, contact you anyway, are there any particular references that you would like to share, um, social media accounts or anything like that? Yeah. So if, if folks are kind of interested in what I'm up to, um, I uh, post from time to time on, on Twitter, and that's at, uh, at JP McCarter. I'll also um, occasionally post on LinkedIn. Uh, James McCarter is, is, is my account. And then if, if anyone would like to reach out to me um, with, with any questions or thoughts, um, my email address is jamespmccarter at gmail.com. 
Okay, perfect. And I'll link to those in the show notes for everyone listening. But uh, I just want to say thank you so much for expanding again on that interesting Medium article with uh, the, the 12 different uh, keto diet myths. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to uh, finding out more from you down, down the line when more research comes out. Yeah. And um, when time permits, I'm going to do a follow-up uh, to that. I actually have um, right over here on, on, on my file cabinet have um, a bunch of post-it notes um, and those were the top 12, but there are um, definitely 12 more. There may be um, 24 more. So um, in, ter- in terms of uh, things that I have to reach a little bit beyond the, uh, the Verda Health, Indiana University Health publications to address some of these things. But um, reaching into other parts of the, the clinical trial literature, there's, um, there are a bunch of other um, myths that, that can be busted. Okay. Well, again, I'll, I'll end up sharing that on social media when you end up sharing that article too. Excellent. Perfect. Thanks again, James. What a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks, Gary. Uh-huh.